0: Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on September 6, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. And this evening, we're talking with Eli Beckerman, founder of an organization known as Open the Debates. Open the Debates is a grassroots, cross partisan group that advocates for conducting political debates with more than just Democrats and Republicans. With over 25,000 members and growing, the group takes on the issue of exclusionary debates wherever they occur, from municipal elections all the way up through the presidential debates. They seek to elevate the political discourse in the United States toward meaningful discussion and debate about the issues, challenges, policies, and solutions needed to make at progress together as a nation. Eli Beckerman is a strategic thinker, organizer, and communications professional working to open up the U.S. political system to new ideas, fresh voices, and better choices. After years of organizing to build the Green Party as a viable political alternative, he started working with the Libertarians, Political Independents, and others to create Open the Debates as a cross-partisan vehicle to transform the political discourse and political realities of the United States. Mr. Eli Beckerman, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening.
1: Thanks so much, Dan. It's great to be with you.
0: So let's get started. Could you could you start us off with a brief description of what the Open Debates organization is in terms of its goals, its its motivations, and perhaps more generally, what, uh, what vision it holds for the future?
1: Sure. I think um, we started off in 2012 really focused on the presidential debates. And we were looking at an election where there were two candidates being excluded from the debates. And in that equation, they were also being excluded from media coverage. And so I'm referring to the libertarian candidate, Gary Johnson and the green party candidate, Jill Stein. And, you know, I think it was, it was at that point, it was really clear that the American public favored the idea of open debates but there had been this um, long running scheme basically by the two parties to control the presidential debates. And they have, over the years, they've kind of shifted their their appearance on it and, and their stance on it, but they've very clearly been very interested in, in shutting out outside competition. So it's an area where the Democrats and Republicans are very happy to cooperate with each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, I tend to call it collusion and they cooperate when, when it comes to limiting the ballot access for third party and independent candidates, trying to make sure that they they don't get a piece of the media attention that you would expect a free and fair election to, to have. And um, they, you know, they, they get to write the rules and in this case, in the presidential elections, they created the commission on presidential debates. Um, but in 2018, I started to take a much closer look. So this was always a side project of mine. Mm-hmm. And late 2018, uh, I I tried to uh, make a career move where I could dive into this full-time. I thought the need was there. I, I think it's a huge strategic opportunity and I just I was you know kind of going out on a limb, um, pushing this issue, um, seeing the need for a national organization that could take it on. And when I, when I looked, started looking at it more closely, I really found that the issue of exclusionary political debates was pervasive across our political system, And I think it's one of these issues that I think remains incredibly underappreciated and poorly understood by even the political reform movement that's out there that's trying to address a lot of the structural problems with our political system, I think there's been some neglect. You know, There certainly has been some attention on the presidential debates. That's where most of the energy and, and focus has gone. Uh, I really think when it comes to local level, so local races, even municipal races, um, the idea of exclusionary political debates and who basically who is out there making these decisions about who gets included to a debate um, and who gets included in media coverage um, had kind of pointed me to this concept of these gatekeepers. And the Commission on Presidential Debates is is the most well-known publicly available gatekeeper out there. but there's you know there's this slew of self appointed gatekeepers across the country that work together to shut out outside competition for the Democrats and Republicans. It's yeah. not always it's not always limited to um the two parties um, but f- you know that that tends to be the um the two entities out there that are given a very unfair unfair advantage when it comes to elections. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the vote, that voters understand just the extent to which the parties have worked to tilt the system in their favor. And so it's, it's one of these things that um, I think it's a really key piece of the larger political reform puzzle. And so I'm trying as best as I can to, um, to basically make this a strategic um, decision and option for people who are looking to change the system Mm -hmm. to change and improve our U S political system. Um, I think there's a lot of frustration and a lot of outrage and a lot of disgust and a lot of despair. And um, luckily there's also a lot of well-informed and I think better informed Action to to fix the system And you know, I just I see debates as a really critical piece of that puzzle and not just In terms of opening it up to third party and independent candidates, but to improve Vastly improve the political conversation that we're having across the country. Sure.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, we've, uh, I mentioned uh, in previous podcasts as well, that Teresa Amato, uh, she's been on a podcast uh, earlier this year. She wrote this book called Grand Illusion, The Myth of Voter Choice in a Two-Party Tyranny. And she states in the book there that, you know, when Ross Perot, for example, who who had run uh, for office uh, for president in 1992, um, he was allowed into the presidential debate and she argues in the book that this actually was a positive thing for him. He actually was able to get that year, I believe, uh close to 19% of the popular vote, although he didn't win any of the uh, any of the electoral votes, but uh this was a big threat to the Democrats and Republicans uh of letting, you know, Ross Perot win. But but as Teresa said that that um the fact that he was in the debates and and brought his charts out there. I don't know if you remember, and I'm actually old enough to remember all this stuff, sure. but he brought on all these charts about, you know, how, how the U.S. debt was going to like basically destroy the country and so on. The fact that he was in the debates actually increased uh, significantly his exposure and and brought him into the minds of a lot of people that ended up voting for him. So it does make a difference. I think when you are in the debates, it does make a difference. And the fact that the, that the CPD, the Commission on Presidential Debates, uh, tries to keep it to just the Democrats and Republicans, it really does have a uh, deleterious effect on um, on, on people's uh, uh, consciousness.
1: Yeah, I think Ross Perot is a really terrific example of exactly the reason why the Commission on Presidential Debates and the, the Democrats and Republicans have shifted towards outright exclusion of of independent third-party voices, I mm-hmm. think they know very clearly that if uh, in a fair debate, the they would be forced to grapple with things that are beyond their control, they'd be forced to grapple with serious issues that they that they're more comfortable ignoring, or if they have a false binary divide, so the Democrats represent one side of this issue and the Republicans represent the other side then we're sort of at a stalemate and maybe whoever wins power can act on that issue. But other than otherwise, um, they don't really have to debate it. I think when you look at us policy, there are huge areas of policy where there's a lot of agreement between the Democrats and Republicans. And because of that agreement, we never get to debate those, those issues in depth. So Mm -hmm. on an issue like war, it's, you know, there really isn't one side or the other that has, that is tended towards um, more warmongering um, or increasing the Pentagon budget. It's something that they do together mm-hmm. cycle after cycle. And we don't get to have that debate as U S citizens who have an interest in maybe stopping some foreign wars and foreign interve- interventions. Mm-hmm. We don't really get to, to have candidates that can, um, you know, occasionally it comes up, and occasionally there are differences. But for the most part, there's a lot of bipartisan agreement. Um I think the federal deficits and and the national debt is something where when Perot was included, he really forced the issue, mm-hmm. and Clinton was kind of forced to, um I mean, he he probably did so opportunistically, but he he took on the issue. and so the Democrats ended up adopting. Um, some ideas that came from this independent force. Mm-hmm. Um, back when Perot was in, the Commission on Presidential Debates had very subjective criteria, and they went with the wishes of the two candidates. So at the time, Clinton and Bush agreed that they both wanted Perot in, and the commission uh, relented and and went along with that. Um, in addition to Teresa's book. um, I really recommend the book No Debate by George Farah. And it's kind of the definitive book about the Commission on Presidential Debates and how they how they operate. And, you know, it's a little um, dated because the Commission has evolved since that book was written. Mm -hmm. Um, But when 1996 came around, the the Democrat and Republican candidates had shifted their views and Bob Dole was interested in, you know, there being uh, presidential debates and getting as many of them as possible. So um, the Clinton campaign used the exclusion of Ross Perot um, as, as a way of getting there to be fewer debates and have them timed for football events and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And just to to minimize viewership and to make them as non-events as possible. And so the two candidates agreed that they didn't want Perot in, and the commission went along with that. Right. And um, since then, and I think in particular, it had to do with who was coming next in terms of independent campaigns that that would be taken seriously by a lot of Americans. Um, in 2000, when when Ralph Nader was on the horizon, and he was kind of known as this litigious um, person, you know, effective litigation to. Um, to reform, you know, all sorts of systems. Mm-hmm. I think that the commission realized that they were going to be in court and they needed to have at least the appearance of objectivity. And that 15% threshold was born. And, you know, we've, we've really um, suffered as a nation since then because the conversation has been limited at the presidential level. To to just two voices, and I think there there are plenty of reasons why we need to open it up more broadly.
0: Right. So that fifteen percent that you're referring to that that basically says that anybody who or a presidential candidate has to get fifteen percent or more of the existing popular uh, opinion, I guess. So they they would they would go out and, and, and um, look at different polls out there and average them out and say you have got to get at least fifteen percent in order to get on a stage with us, which is kind of a chicken and egg thing, right? Because you can't get that much popularity without getting all this free publicity that these two parties get during the debates. Um, But I guess what I'm saying is that that's almost an impossible barrier to to overcome, right? That 15%.
1: Exactly, exactly. Designed to be impossible Mm -hmm. and yeah. I mean, if Mike Bloomberg went ahead and ran as an independent, I'm sure he could get to the 15% in the polls. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that we want a, a political system where billionaires get to be part of the conversation and the rest of us are shut out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So. Um... And that was actually going to, I was going to ask you a question because I saw this question come up on uh, one of the Twitter feeds uh, of, I think that's a link to your, to the account, Open the Debates. And somebody said, why is it so difficult? You know, that was a very innocent question, of course, but um, that's actually a two-part question for me. So let's answer that first question, which I think we pretty much addressed. You know, why is it so difficult to get into the debates? And right now the criteria is 15%, but... also another criteria which i'm dimly aware of and perhaps you can confirm this and that is uh if you take part in any other debate you cannot then debate in the cpd sponsored debates is that correct
1: um that i don't think that that's necessarily the case Mm -hmm. i i think um so there are two different things one is the primary debates Mm -hmm. and the Democrats and Republicans have both said, if you participate in a non sanctioned, so a debate like for the, for the Democrats, if Tulsi Gabbard participated in the free and equal debate that we had in March mm-hmm. um, that might've shut her out from all future DNC sanctioned debates, hmm. they had to sign some agreement, I think. Okay. And with the commission on presidential debates, They've operated under these secret memorandums of understanding. And so those MOUs have been the place which the candidates behind closed doors make an agreement that they're not going to participate in another debate. Mm. And the the CPD goes along with these MOUs. And one of the reasons why George Farr's book was so amazing was they dug up these, you know, they got their hands on some of these private um, memorandums of understanding that exposed the kinds of things that these candidates are agreeing to. Wow. And I think it really speaks to the clarity that the League of Women Voters had when they were shut out in 1988. Mm -hmm. Um, They, you know, for four cycles, I believe they, they ran the president televised presidential debates and there was this push to have the two parties kind of run them instead. And they tried to get the League of Women Voters to go along and stay on as a sponsor. And they publicly put out the statement when they were kind of forced to just back out of it because they couldn't risk their credibility. They couldn't lend their credibility to this. No. What they, called it, um, they called it a hoodwinking of the American public and that, you know, that if the these organizations if these two parties got their wish then it would perpetrate a fraud on the american people the the league of women voters knew that if you if you start to do this stuff behind closed doors and you know it's all choreographed by the candidates themselves that there's there's a degree of authenticity that it loses and that you start to get to this point where it's not journalism it's not uh, public interest service to voters who are trying to make a, a decision, but it's this um, scripted public relations event that's putting these candidates in front of people, and and they don't really get challenged in a way that um, would serve the public interest in the first place. Yeah. Um, so I think these these MOUs really kind of show the MO of of the Commission on Presidential Debates and the two parties and their candidates. And I believe, I don't, I haven't seen the most solid reporting on it, but I, I believe that 2016 is the first time that the, um, the basically because um, Donald Trump was one of the candidates and he's so unpredictable and and kind of fly in the face of these two parties when he ran, um, he, he did not sign uh, an MOU. Um, that's that's the reporting that I saw. Mm-hmm. And um, so I wonder if they made agreements or not about that um, or if, if he reserved the right to go on some other debates and do it however he, he wanted to. Yeah. And um, I haven't heard about 2020. Yeah. I, I don't know if they have uh, an agreement in place or not.
0: Hmm. Well, that sounds kind of like his MO as well. He was not a, a a player in those in those games at all. So, um Right. Yeah. So, uh the, so the second part of my question here is, you know, we understand now why it's so difficult and why the League of Women Voters pulled out of it uh, saying they didn't want to perpetuate a fraud, but now I got to ask a question. Um the why? Why not do an end run around the commission? I mean, yeah, these days you, we have live stream TV, YouTube, Vimeo, Hulu, Apple TV. I mean, literally dozens of platforms that can be used to live stream video to thousands, if not millions, of people um, at really bargain basement prices. It's done all the time by private organizations. Right. So, um, why is it, I guess the the, the disconnect to have in my mind is what uh, power does the commission for presidential debate have over the traditional media channels? And if there is some sort of, you know, corruption or not, not necessarily corruption, but some sort of understanding there, then why couldn't we just do an end run around it and, and broadcast it, you know, on one of these other independent channels?
1: I mean, I think it's a great opportunity for a truly independent channel that isn't going to be begging the political establishment for any favors to do that and run. I, I think that the, the most prominent candidates would probably be happy to see an intervention like that. Uh, I know that CNN uh, in the 1980, um, 1980 presidential election when, when John Anderson was allowed in some debates and not others. And, mm-hmm. or he, he, I guess the League of Women Voters allowed John Anderson in. And um, I'm trying to remember now, Jimmy Carter ended up not participating because because he didn't wanna lend any credibility to John Anderson. So it was just Reagan and, and John Anderson for at least one of the debates. And I believe CNN um on another debate where John Anderson wasn't included they i don't think they did it live but they they had him answering questions and broadcast the full debate with his answers included hmm. and i think that there are ways of doing this live there are ways of of doing this after the fact and i think that if there was an organization a news organization out there that was truly interested in serving the needs of the American electorate, then they would come up with a way to to add voices to this important conversation. And I think, you know, I think it would be a, re- a ratings bump. I think one of the things that Ross Perot's inclusion proved was when you include more voices, you actually attract more interest. Yeah. and it it was a ratings bump. To have him in, and I think it was also a voter turnout bump to have him be part of that conversation. Yeah. And I think if you know if we want to be bringing more voices, uh, more diverse perspectives into our national political discourse, I think that would be a really vital thing to 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 do is to bring more voices into it, um, yeah. people who are running. And I think one of the numbers that kind of drives me insane but i think makes the case as clearly as anything else i've ever seen is when you ask the question to the american public would you like to see more candidates in the debates Mm -hmm. who would you like to see in the debates if if you know if they're on enough ballots to win the election do you want to see them included and in 2016 when suffolk university asked that question it was 76% to 17%. So it wasn't even close. There was no wow. yeah. ball game there. It yeah. was overwhelming. The American public wanted more voices in. They wanted to have Gary Johnson and Jill Stein part of that conversation. And the, the commission sees itself in this role of deciding for the American electorate that, you know, well, they're not valuable candidates. So we actually don't. Think you should hear from them, mm-hmm. and I think that that sentiment is fundamentally anti-democratic, anti-American, anti-voter. Um, I think it's pretty disgusting that they can get away with this with this idea that they're serving the American electorate when the American electorate is telling them very clearly. And they could pull, you know, they want to rely on polling so badly. Why not just pull that question? It would be a lot simpler.
0: Yeah. Well, it uh, it fits in with, and, and I, I know from looking at one of your previous interviews, you had talked uh, about uh, Catherine Gale and, and Michael Porter's book, um, yeah. "The Politics Industry," and w- we actually had the privilege of having Catherine Gale on this uh, podcast a couple weeks ago, and uh, the point that she was making was that um, they're not the the commission of presidential debates here as part of the duopoly they're not inclined to serve their customers right they're serving okay. themselves so the illusion i think that that uh, that you're referring to is that most americans think that this is fair or maybe they don't even think about it you know it's like fish being in water they don't think about the water that's surrounding them this is just part of the status quo for them so um yeah. I think most Americans would be surprised to find out that, you know, this, that our, our, uh, country, uh, the, the, the decisions being made on, on the CPD are really being made on a industrial level, not really on a citizen
1: level. And part of the brilliance of the scheme is they called themselves the commission on presidential debates, which really sounds official.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And to, to most voters, you would think that the commission on presidential debates is a government body or some sort of officially recognized body that's in charge of presidential debates and they certainly position themselves as such and here's the trick if the media goes along with that and the media treats them like an official sounding organization and you know what they say whatever the cpd determines has merit and um you know, you can't really do anything about it, then, then that kind of cements in place this this concept that, well, you know, I don't like it. I don't think it's fair, but there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. And I think that's the lie. And of course, there are things we can do about it. There are a lot of things we can do about it. One of the things that, you know, would be pretty easy to do is spread the word that if even if you don't like the libertarian candidate you know, she's she's the candidate who's going to be on the most state ballots. She's it's either going to be 49 or 50 state ballots NDC. If everyone answered the the polling question, um, the na- very narrowly framed polling question, you know, which is always who do you plan to vote for on Election Day? If you're a likely voter, mm-hmm. um, that's th- that's the 15 percent threshold they need to pass is who do you plan to vote for? Um, if everyone answered that question, Joe Jorgensen, the libertarian, that would put her over the 15% threshold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we would need to get the word out about that. Um, I just think that's an, an example of one of the kinds of things that we could be doing to basically manipulate the, the ridiculousness of the way that they use polls to get what they want. Yeah. Um, I think I think it shows how manipulative the whole thing is. And and, you know, why not just ask us who we want to see included?
0: Yeah. You know, it's it's, uh, going back to uh, Teresa Amato's book again. uh, There was a couple of quotes I pulled out from her and she's uh, from her book there. And that was um, she said, as it is, uh, more Americans tune into the American idol than to the presidential debates. And further, she goes on to say, and she's actually quoting another uh, um, another outlet here, but she says thirty five percent of American Idol voters believe their vote counts as much or more than their vote for president. Yeah. So, so you got you, you got the American Idol actually, in in a sense, being more democratic, at least perceived to be more democratic than our than our election system here, and I think that's a tragedy that. Uh, Certainly the, the Commission on Presidential Debates is uh, contributing to.
1: Absolutely. yeah, and I, I think I imagine that the other side of that is, is the way that the electoral college distorts the political conversation. and you know, I don't know what the percentage of, of Americans living in battleground states is, but that's, that's really where your vote does matter for president. And I think when you're not in a battleground state, I think that's another area where we, we actually have a lot of power with our vote, I live in Massachusetts and, um, you know, it's a solid blue state that my vote for president is gonna do absolutely zero if it's not for an independent candidate. And um, I wish that some of my friends sometimes saw their votes that way because, you know, nudging the popular vote for, for the blue team or red team really doesn't do anything when it comes down to to who wins that contest?
0: Right. Well, I mean, the, the districts are so heavily gerrymandered to begin with, too. So it could be argued that uh, you know, I, I personally, I live in Missouri, so it's going to go red. Everybody knows that. Um, right. I live in the second congressional district, which is probably going to go red. I mean, there's, there's a chance it'll go blue this time. It's a suburban district, but um, it's. It, I've looked at the gerrymandered lines just in my own district and um, there's one area where it squiggles around an apartment complex that this this grabs at a apartment complex. And uh, so it, yeah, it, to your larger point though that um, your vote is um, is certainly devalued uh, on a national level.
1: Yeah, and I, I think just an idea of, of um, someone I would love to hear in 2020 talking about this issue. Uh, congressman Jamie Raskin, at the t- time he wasn't a, a congressman, but um, he really led the charge in two thousand on some um, the idea of vote trading, and these these websites that matched up people who are concerned about the spoiler effect and the ways that their vote might count. It matched people up across the different kinds of states that are faced with different kinds of of decisions about president in a way that you could find someone and kind of pair your vote with someone. So if you were concerned that you're, by voting for the candidate who you actually like the most, that that was going to elect the candidate that you hated the most, um, you, there were people that you could match up with and sort of cancel each other out in mm. a way that that gave people freedom to vote for who we actually believe in and who we prefer and who's speaking to the issues that matter to us.
0: Yeah. Well, that's an interest. I never heard about that before. That's pretty interesting. Hmm. So getting back to uh, your organization though, because I, I, it's, I'm trying to get uh, a little bit more information about um, about what you're doing. Um, Could we briefly touch on like the tactical side of things? I mean, I mean, in in your opinion, who would conduct the debates, for example, and and how can we be sure that they're transparent, fair and open? But also, you know, what is what is your approach to helping the situation?
1: Well, I would say that open the debates underwent something of a strategic pivot earlier this year, and it was led in part by this amazing quote by Buckminster Fuller, Uh, I'm going to paraphrase it because i I never remember it exactly but if you want to change the existing system you don't do it by fighting it you do it by building a model that makes the old model obsolete and Mm. i think um we found that in the absence of debates that really served voters there, it was important to start to think about innovating the debates because I think we hear criticism from many, many different camps about the nature of the, of our political debates and that they don't serve voters well. Mm-hmm. And there's so many different types of frustrations. So we tried to look at it from, you know, well, let's say that the debates were in our hands and we could, as an electorate come up with debates that did serve us and what would that look like. Mm-hmm. And so I think democratizing the debates is is really important. And I don't think that we can say exactly what we would like to see as a, you know an organization out there that's that's running better debates. Um, but we partnered in March with the Free and Equal Elections Foundation to put on um an open presidential debate. It was the first time ever that one of these debates took place during the primary season. So there were more voices than you would normally get to when you're getting to the to the general election debates. And we ended up with 18 candidates representing 10 different political affiliations. Hmm. And you know, a lot of people would say that 18 candidates is way too many and um you know, there's no way you can have a coherent conversation with that many people. Uh, we split it up into two different debates of nine people each. And I really think it served as a prototype for the type of cross-partisan conversation we can have. It was a constructive, respectful debate from people across the political spectrum. It included Republicans and Democrats. There were a lot of libertarians. There were a couple of green candidates some independent candidates, some socialist candidates, there was, uh, even the transhumanist party participated. Um, there were a lot of different viewpoints, but the, the importance was the nature of the conversation was fundamentally incredibly different from the battle Royale boxing match style of Democrat Republican debates. Mm -hmm. When, you know, you just have two candidates and, they're trying to wallop each other. And um, I, I think those debates never really lead to anything very constructive, um, at least in modern times. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, we were able to keep the debate very focused on the issues, focused on solutions and ideas. And I think when when you look at it and you hear this yearning, and I think you know, when you look to the American people there's this yearning that really is not tapped for real democratic impulses, small D democratic impulses of, you know, we have to work together um, on some level. Mm -hmm. We have to have conversation that is respectful, that's forward-looking. People wanna be heard, they wanna be seen um, I think to do that, you really need to start including more voices in this conversation and kind of elevating. I mean, I, th- I think one of the things that really gets me is the nature of the 2016 election and how these gatekeepers swooped in to decide viability for, for the electorate. And it it they raised up Donald Trump in a way that Um, You know, I think it would have been fine to give him a platform and to give him, um, you know, as much space as any other candidate. Mm -hmm. But when they shut out other voices, they're making this very it's it's beyond subjective. They are tipping the scales in favor of the duopoly in a way that's unacceptable to my guess would be around 96% of, of the American electorate. Mm -hmm. And like Gary Johnson happened to be polling. He was tied for first place in a military times poll as late as September. So he was tied for first place among active military personnel Mm -hmm. and you know, he was shut out of the, of the conversation. And when, he made his gaffe about Aleppo, the media then starts paying all sorts of attention to him to, to draw attention to how ludicrous it was that he wants to be president and he doesn't know what Aleppo was. They could have been doing the same thing to Trump. You know, I don't, I think for there to be a popular Republican governor in a blue state like New Mexico, two-term governor, um, Clearly, should have been taken at least as seriously as as Trump. Right. Um, I think you know they really do a disservice to the kinds of conversations that we need to be having, the kinds of conversations we deserve to be having. Even just in terms of voter education, just give us an unbiased, objective, fair look at what our choices are. And in 2016, there were there were really four choices who had any shot at winning. And the same is happening in 2020. There are four candidates. Howie Hawkins is the Green candidate. Joe Jorgensen is the Libertarian candidate. They should be getting at least a visible fraction of the airtime and the talking head, blabbering um, media time that goes on and on about about this election. Um, Mm. Both Jorgensen and Hawkins, thankfully, participated in our in our March debate and I was heartened to see them go on to win their party's nominations. Um, I, you know, I really think it's, um, it's important to give them some level of a platform. You don't have to, you know, raise them up beyond what their, what their base would demand, um, command. But, um, I think that they, um, you know, it's, it's, I don't even see it as an issue of fairness to those candidates. I think it's a, an issue of fairness to voters. And I think we want to be well-informed. I think we need to be well-informed. I think that's the basis for healthy self-government. And when you have these gatekeepers that are saying, you know what, they don't have a shot. We're not gonna let you hear, hear them. We're, we're gonna fill your um, media plate with um, all sorts of hype, about about these two other candidates right um i think there's a real breakdown in the system there
0: yeah yeah i agree i have i've actually listened to uh, ralph nader's podcast quite often whenever i can anyways and uh i've heard him say this several times that you know the the to, to your point basically is where i'm going here is um the public airwaves are the public airwaves. The people own the airwaves, right? And now, you know, everything's going through cable and fiber optic, but people still own all the easements through which all these signals are being broadcasted. And yet we end up with people who are gatekeepers who can are given the ability to uh, limit the discussion and it's not in the public interest, if, uh, if I'm understanding what you're saying here. And yet they're using public resources to distribute this. So uh, on the face of it, it, it's just unfair, right? I think it's just completely unfair. Um, yep. Just from uh, just from a, a, a business perspective, you know, we're using public resources. The public should be able to have all the information they want. And yet we still see this consolidation toward the duopoly and nothing seems to be able to break. Well, maybe a few things, Jesse Ventura, perhaps, and Ross Perot to some degree, but these are more exceptions than the rule, right?
1: Well, they they, they actually show the importance of debates, and both of them are examples of what what debates can do. And Jesse Ventura was polling at 10% in September in 1998 uh, when he ran for, for Minnesota governor, and... Just because of the- you know who the organizations the two organizations that were putting on these putting on these debates together, it was Minnesota public radio and um, I think it was the the League of women voters there they they felt you know he's on the ballot uh, he's only at ten percent, but he should be part of the conversation right and they were going to have a series of eight debates and I don't know if they decided from the outset that they were gonna include him in in all eight, but he shot up from 10%. He was in a a couple of debates. He shot up to 27% from there. And after this series of eight debates, he he won that election with 37%. That's at a time when, you know, there are all sorts of arguments that you can't have a third party um, that you just can't win. So there were spoiler arguments then um, so people had to overcome all of that in order to vote for him in the first place and fear that they might tip the election some way or another. Um, I think, you know, Ross Perot was similarly at 10% before he appeared in, in those three general election debates. And he, like you said, he ended up with around 19% of the vote. Um, that's because he was in the debates right. and, um, the other, the other side of it is what happens when you exclude candidates. And um, I think you know it's clear why they're making these exclusions. I think Jesse Ventura proves exactly why. I think Ross Perot proves exactly why. But I don't think people even know the extent they go to keep these, these candidates out of the debates. And in 2012, when, when Jill Stein showed up at Hofstra University, uh, she was actually invited by MSNBC to go on air at the debate site with her views. And even still, she was um, whisked away and, and handcuffed to a chair for eight hours at some undisclosed location. Yeah. And, you know, clearly those debates don't last eight hours um, but they made sure that there wouldn't be any media left for her to talk to when she when she finally got out. Her campaign staff didn't know where she was. I don't think people knew that there was a, a presidential candidate who happened to also um, have uh, s- secured matching funds. So taxpayers were footing some of the bill of Jill Stein's 2012 campaign Mm-hmm. And here there was this free opportunity to to hear from her. So not only was she excluded from the debate, but she wasn't even given a chance to go on air to one of, you know, one of these media companies that was willing to give her a platform. Yeah. Um, it's it's really I mean, I think they would not be going to those extreme lengths if they were not scared as hell of of letting in a Jill Stein or a Joe Jorgensen. Um, I mean, I think those, those two women are so heavily outmatched by the duopoly. I don't know what it is they're afraid of, but it's very clear that they're afraid of an actual conversation of ideas and, uh, visions for what the, what the country can do, um, that isn't part of the duopoly's vision.
0: Yeah. And that, that very similar thing actually happened uh, to Ralph Nader. I believe it was the 2000 election. Um, he was yep. on the campus, I believe, of Boston University, where one of the uh, uh, debates was yeah, taking place. And also another one was, in Washington University. It was
1: UMass Boston. UMass Boston and okay. um, the point there, one of the things that had Nader really upset was that it was a public university mm-hmm and it was the massachusetts state police that were that were following orders from the commission on presidential debates yeah and it was the massachusetts state police that threatened nader with arrest and and wouldn't let him um onto the premises he also had had an invitation from fox news to go on air with his views and um nader decided not to to push his luck and get arrested uh, and I actually kind of wish he had yeah, at that moment. Yeah, me moment. too.
0: Yeah. Well, I think in hindsight, it's always 2020, but that, yes. that, might, have, that might have maybe not have served his uh, campaign so well. But I think it would have helped wake up the American public as to what was really happening. You basically have a private organization that's giving orders to, uh, to the police uh, and uh, executing these orders on public property, on a public university. So it uh, yeah, that actually happened. Uh, I believe that was the 2000 election. Uh, again, that's I believe Teresa Amato's book describes that fairly well. So yeah, it's interesting yeah. that you actually have people handcuffed <laughs> to prevent them from even entering the the uh, the venue. Right? Yeah, it's it's uh yeah. In, in Ralph Nader's case, too, we actually had tickets and he showed them the tickets and they're like, eh, right. yeah, we have orders not to let you in. <laughs> so, uh, that's got to be frustrating.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. So um, we're getting toward the end of our interview here, but I just want to uh, hit one more uh, big question for you here was, um, I'm sure I already know what your answer is going to be, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Do you see the, 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 the fixing the debates uh, as actually going to fix our political ills or is it simply addressing a symptom of our political ills? You know, I, I want to just... Sort of preface this a little bit. You know, there's there's rank choice voting. There's um, you know there's anti gerrymandering things that are going on. There's um, uh, open um, um, primaries, a uh, single open primary uh, debate going on. So, the debates is a big part of it, but it's not a, a cure all for for the ills that our democracy is suffering at this point. Right.
1: Yeah, I th- I think that uh, that's a great question, and I think that. One of one of it one of the key reasons why debates is so important is because it's sort of the the container for everything else. And when you can limit when you can successfully limit debate and shut down debate and make everything into an oversimplified binary choice, then you can get away with pretty much anything.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And when you can't limit the debate, when you're forced to have rational, um, thoughtful, open conversation. So even if they're not that rational and thoughtful, but you're you're forced to let other viewpoints sneak in, Mm -hmm. it becomes harder to control the narrative. It becomes a lot harder Mm -hmm. to control the narrative. And I think that's really what we're working with. I think the US political system is um, as Catherine Gale say says, it's already fixed. The system is fixed. It's mm-hmm. not broken, it's fixed. Right. And you know, when Trump can can rail against a rigged system and you know, huge sections of of Americans can nod their head and say, Yeah, I know. I mean, I think people understand that the system is rigged. When you open up the conversation to to more perspectives, more voices, and when you give people some freedom to think that they can have another choice i mean i think the polling shows that people want more choices they want to open it up to to at least a a third major party um overwhelming numbers want to open up the debate at least to to hear more voices then i think that you are you're not solving everything but you're you're having the conversation Mm -hmm. and i think you know one crystal clear example is rank choice voting in in 2000 nader was the biggest proponent out there of instant runoff voting which most people were calling it at the time but it's the same thing mm-hmm. and he wasn't included in the debates something close to three million people voted for him um and you know that was without any you know, he wasn't given a fraction of the media attention that that Bush and Gore were given. Mm-hmm. And he could have been on that stage addressing the spoiler issue before it actually played out. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure he would have been addressing the spoiler issue. And I'm sure he would have been elevating ranked choice voting as an easy common sense solution
0: mm-hmm.
1: among plenty of other political reform ideas that Nader was kicking around 20 years ago. I think we would be in a much stronger place as a nation if we had turned into that conversation and addressed the systemic problems that Nader was raising. I think 20 years later, it's gotten a lot uglier. It's gotten a lot worse. Um, Some of these issues that he was campaigning on then are harder to solve because we've allowed them to just sort of run along and and we haven't really gotten our heads around how we how we can possibly solve them. Mm-hmm. If we had started back then or at least started talking about it, um, it would have been a lot easier. I think, um, again, in 2012 and 2016, um, candidates like Gary Johnson and Jill Stein talking about solutions like like ranked choice voting. Um, I think we need to open up that conversation as if we're going to have any prayer of... Um, having the type of discussions that we're going to need to have the kinds of debates, rigorous debates of ideas, um, forums to, to smash, hammer out um, compromises and um, let, let stuff out into the light and let the American people kind of see what's out there and run with ideas that, that are um, resonant and, you know, I think the another example is the Green New Deal. Um, Open the debates doesn't take any positions on, on something like the Green New Deal. But Jill Stein was running on that platform in 2012 mm-hmm. and 2016. Howie Hawkins, as a governor candidate in New York, is the first U.S. Green to, to put that into a platform. And 10 years later, um, the Green New Deal is like, you know a new idea introduced by by the Democrats mostly. Um, but we could have have we could have been having that conversation for over the past decade. And you know, I think that we we shoot ourselves in the foot by by shutting out these other voices. I think Ross Perot raising the the national debt is another important one. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear Howie Hawkins and Joe Jorgensen debate um, how we best solve the national debt problem. Um, and, and to have Joe Biden and Donald Trump on stage with them so that they actually have to respond yeah. and, and give us their solutions. Um, it's a way that when these two parties are in agreement on just piling on onto the debt and letting you know future generations deal with it, um, I think then we don't have that as part of the conversation. So I think it's vital to add third, fourth, fifth, sixth voices in And um, other perspectives. I mean, I think the American electorate is far more independent than it is Democrat or Republican, and um, our political system doesn't reflect that, or honor it, or respect it in any way, shape, or form.
0: Yeah. Well, I think the numbers bear you out on that too. There's um, an increasing number of Americans are dropping their duopoly affiliations, and so the percentage the latest numbers I have is that the percentage self-identifying as independents is somewhere around 41% versus people who identify as Democrats, uh, 30% of people that identify as Democrats, 28 identify as Republicans. So the um, independents is, they're they're bigger than the other two, than either one of them, not, not bigger than both, but bigger than either one of the two. Uh, at the end of the day, though, when it comes to the voting booth, you have to choose one, right? So you, end up choosing the lesser of two evils basically um, is the unfortunate result of all this. So, um, well, that that was well put. I I like that. I think, I think it's very important to bring out the debates. I think that people need to become aware of what's really going on. And um, a lot of these uh, issues are buried, I believe in the media. And um, uh, the more people know, the more intelligent decisions they can make. So um, this is I'd like to get to the part I call the call to action part of our discussion here. Uh, What can people do to uh, get more involved in your organization and um, and uh, help out with our democracy to make it a more perfect union?
1: Yeah. So we are at a I would say uh, a unique time for Open the Debates because. The my efforts to to work on this full time and. to to really turn it into a serious national organization that could make a significant difference on the issue. Uh, I I spent around a year and a half, absolutely full time on the issue and we made a lot of great strides and I had to pull back from that um, because I wasn't able to line up the the kind of funding that it would really take. Mm -hmm. And now here we are at, at this moment where the eyeballs are there for the issue of debates. And I'm kind of, I'm trying to find as much time as I can, but I can't justify the kind of time that I was putting in. I put in a lot of time as a volunteer on this. And um, so there's part of me that is, um, that wants to put forward a kind of false, idea that, you know, all it's going to take is, is people, um, rallying together and, you know, in our spare time, figuring out ways of, of advancing the issue and we'll break through. Um, I think that there are a lot of amazing things happening on the issue right now. I think, um, I'm really impressed with the kind of self-organizing model that, um, the, that. Joe Jorgensen supporters are doing right now. They're having these Let Her Speak car convoy rallies. Um, they're, they're doing a lot of cool stuff on social media that is um, that feels really refreshing to me. Um, but I've, I've really felt like it's not gonna be an effort by any one of these candidates alone or any one of these parties alone I think we need to be working across the political spectrum in a truly cross-partisan, non-partisan way and finding ways for the Greens and Libertarians together to to work together, um, opening that movement up to people who consider themselves Democrats and Republicans but really want a healthy democracy. The independents who would never identify with one of these parties I think working with the different um, third party and independent candidates that are out there. Um, and I see it as the need to build a national organization that can um, really advance this issue in ways that um, that we need beyond these four-year cycles. And so there's all this energy on the issue right now, and I'm hoping to to be able to sort of tap into some of that energy and do some crowdfunding, have like a money bomb that um, that catches on a little bit. And it's really, you know, I think it's gonna be successful when it's finding Alliance Party people and Reform Party people and Constitution Party people. And, you know, really truly across the political spectrum. And people, so one, one thing that I just launched is this, um, presidential campaign checkoff, like our tax forms, Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone has any idea what that checkoff does, um, or what it means that, you know, you, you check off that you want to give $3 to this fund, and it's not going to influence your tax refund. So it's, it's one of those things that's always baffled me. I mean, I think I have some idea of how it works. But what if we just Actually donated three dollars to the cause, mm-hmm. and so I I really hope that people go to openthedebates.org/donate, give three dollars, give thirty dollars, something small, something big, but make it an investment in this open political system that I'm talking about. And um, we also on our website have a get involved tab. Um, where people can sign up to volunteer. And the more people that sign up right now, I think um, you know, the more interest there is, the harder it is for me to to put this to the back burner. And I'm really actually trying to connect with some people that I think could make a big difference in whether or not this goes forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I am committed to this issue. I think um, one of the efforts that I see, um, that's that's coming together. That is really exciting to me. Is by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and their Commission on the Practice of Democratic Citizenship. That's a mouthful, but they they released this report earlier this year. Uh, it's called Our Common Purpose, and there's something about it that I think is really strikes a chord with me. And I think it's striking a chord across the political reform movement. Uh, I hope that it strikes a chord in this independent and third party political space as well. Um, they're using the 250th anniversary of the founding of the nation. So it's, it's July 4th, 2026, mm-hmm. as their sort of deadline for enacting as ma- as many of the recommendations from this report that just came out and they're serious reforms um, and they, they're calling it reinventing American democracy for the 21st century mm. and and they use language like it's the fourth founding of, of the country um, following you know other foundings and after the Civil War and the civil rights movement. Um, they're, they are not shying away from the deep foundational problems that this nation has and i think that they're trying to get reforms like ranked choice voting out there in as many states as possible i'm uh, happy and proud to be part of of the work to get um ranked choice voting passed in massachusetts for us to follow maine's lead but i think the idea of 2026 as this time frame gives us a lot to work with. I think mm-hmm. this election is too important to sit it out and to not try to have a voice for opening up the the political system. Uh I think the the Democrats and it's, you know, it comes from the Republicans too, but the Democrats have this particular way of framing these things um that that I think is is really off-putting to me, because they, they pretend that they're um, in favor of this democracy concept, but then their, their actions really um, work against it in so many different ways, yeah. really yeah. anti-democratic tendencies. Um, and uh, I just, I, I wish that people recognized that this sort of rigged system is what gave us Trump and Trumpism in the first place, And if we really want to to combat this, um, I think you know, kind of a rogue actor who's he's taken advantage of a lot of the legitimate grievances that people have out there, um, and sort of used them to his own advantage in a way that I don't think stands up uh, under scrutiny. Um, But I think it makes sense that people across the political spectrum have all of these different grievances and we're just not given a channel to, to do anything very constructive with them. I think um, if we come together in this 2020 election, I think if it is such an important election, then we really need to lean into our strongest democratic impulses. And that means opening up the conversation beyond Joe Biden Um, I think the, you know, there's all this fear that I'm, you know, hitting up against people who are just petrified of the idea of doing anything that might that might hand this election to Trump. And I just think, you know, when you're going to use anti-democratic tactics in order to like solidify some idea of, you know, installing your idea of a lesser evil candidate. Um, then you're, you're really undermining the idea that any of us should give a shit about preserving American democracy. Right. Um, I think American democracy has always been a myth. And it's, it's been a promise, but it's been this false promise. And I think, you know, I, I think most Americans can get behind the idea of building towards a more perfect union and accepting that it's not perfect um but i think we you know if we opened up the conversation we would have a new understanding of just how imperfect it is i don't think we live in a democracy in this country and i think there's a lot that we can be doing and i you know i'm grateful to see all sorts of reforms all sorts of people really break through the noise and do things not for partisanship but they're doing it because it's stuff that we need it's stuff that that truly reflects the best of us um, and I think we need to be doing that together. I think we need to be doing it across big, vast differences of opinion. Um, and, you know, Open the Debates is signed on to this uh, general election debate with free and equal, October 8th in Denver, there, we're, we're doing another open presidential debate. And I think that that's a platform to um, open up the conversation more broadly and i think that people can get involved with that effort um but you know the more people that sign up to help open the debates the more people that donate it makes the equation a little bit easier for me to put more of my time into it and um to really build the kind of team that i that i need uh in order to to advance this between now and 2026. so um find us on on facebook and twitter at open the debates uh, join the conversation. Sign our petition uh, to the Commission on Presidential Debates, um, demanding that we open the debates in 2020. And um, connect with us. Be part of this. I think we need you. Um, and and you know, find ways to raise our voices together, and not to try to make it as not as nonpartisan as possible. So. Um, there's a lot of outrage around Joe Jorgensen being being denied this this podium, mm-hmm. and I th- I just think it's more effective when it comes from this nonpartisan place, and uh, I don't know, um, you know I think the passion is is really important. I think um, I'm looking forward to. I think people are are like feeling done with allowing the commission on presidential debates get away with this Mm -hmm. so i get the feeling that um, the candidate herself and um a lot of her staunch supporters are ready to show up and commit civil disobedience and kind of shut down the commission's ability to just carry on business as usual and so i'm excited for what the next couple of months holds as these debates near um i think you know we really need to be thinking about movement building and what that means and what that might look like and um i think that we have to force the media's hand here to to not cover the commission on presidential debates as this as if they are some um holy sanctioned authority on on the nature of of presidential debates and and assert some of our authority as we the people to decide for ourselves the kinds of of conversation that we deserve and that we need to make an informed decision and be creative about that you know maybe make the free and equal debate um the debate that more people pay attention to i think Mm -hmm. Your point about the end run around the Commission on Presidential Debates—I think that's absolutely right. I think we need to be thinking strategically about just how we can do that end run. What is it going to take? Who are the media outlets out there that might have the guts to to open up the conversation um, in a way that that actually serves we the people?
0: Yeah. Well, it's well said. I, I've a few things I want to comment about. There is uh, particularly the one the point you ended with. There was uh, sort of forcing the media's hand. Um, that's easier today than it ever was before, um, and so I think that you know, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we have all these different types of of uh, platforms with which we can distribute. Live video, even you know, recorded video. You know, YouTube obviously is the most popular one, but there's there's a couple dozen of them out there that can that can do that. And uh, this goes to uh, uh, competition, right? We, we talked briefly about uh, about the the politics industry with Catherine Gale and, and Michael Porter. They talk about the necessity of competition. Well, this is it, right? We can put competition into the equation by uh, utilizing some of these other platforms and getting as much publicity for them as we possibly can. Um, to your point, though, that, that this is not a democracy, I've, I sort of have to take an exception to that because it, it, um, it, is a, it is a form of democracy that is more uh, lenient, I, I think, uh, has some oligarchic sort of tendencies to it. Um, but we still have some freedoms here. Uh, but freedom is not free, and and I agree that democracy is is a work in progress. And the fact that we have individuals such as yourself that are willing to uh, put it all on the line, uh, and, and and including your career and your personal finances, on the line to make sure that you know that we Americans are uh, are informed and can make our our, our an informed decision and. Uh, you know, keep making our democracy better that that's uh, I, I thank you for what you're doing and, and the work that you're uh, that you and, and others in this industry are doing or you and others in this movement are doing, I should say. The website is openthedebates.org, all one word, no hyphens, no underscores. openthedebates.org and that's plural openthedebates.org. And we can also talk a little bit about uh, free and equal. Uh, their website would be, uh, freeandequal.org, all one word again. Freeandequal, and not the ampersand sign, but freeandequal.org, and, equal dot and uh, get involved. Uh, you know, find out what these, uh, what these, what, go go to the website, see what they're doing. Go to their Facebook page, get the latest uh, what's happening out there. And um, I I truly thank you for all the work that uh, that you're doing at this point.
1: Well. Thank you so much for for diving into this with me and and for giving me this opportunity and yeah it's a great conversation and I I definitely agree with you I think there's there's reason for hope and I think um, the positive framing can can be more important sometimes and um, you know I think it's it isn't um, an easy thing to say whether or not we have a democracy I think. Mm-hmm. Um, we have those tendencies inside us very deeply. And I think um, we also have some other tendencies that, that we allow to slip through. And yeah. um, I think, you know, I wish that we we had a little bit more sense of agency together as the American people to impact the issues that matter to us. And I think, um, you know, we're working on it. And, and there are plenty of reasons to to be optimistic about it. But I think these are dangerous times right now, and uh, yeah. I don't I don't want to accept um, any narratives that have been kind of pushed on me throughout my life. Um, as I see them being pushed on other people right now.
0: Yeah. Very well. Very well put. Um, We've been talking with Eli Beckerman, founder of an organization known as Open the Debates. The organization has over 25,000 members, and they seek to elevate the political discourse in the United States toward meaningful discussion and debate about the issues, challenges, policies, and solutions that are needed to make progress together as a nation. Eli, uh, thank you again for all the work that you're doing, and, and thank you for dropping in to chat with us this evening.
1: Thank you, Dan. It was fun.
0: And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. Also, keep in mind that the podcast has a Twitter page at Alliance on Air. And if you have any suggestions for future topics or people we might interview in a future podcast, please drop us an email at Podcast at theallianceparty.com. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, A great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.